Hello everyone, my name is Rachel Clamp and I am MEMSA's podcast officer this year and I am delighted to be introducing the MEMSA Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast for the new academic year. Our first podcast this year features a paper by Adam Cook. Adam is a third year PhD student at the University of Hull funded by the North of England Consortium for Arts and Humanities. He completed his BA and MRes at the University of Hull in 2017 and 2018, respectively. His PhD research focuses on Yorkshire and Northumberland between 1066 and 1216 and uses baronial families as a lens through which to examine the distinct political, social, cultural and religious characteristics of these regions. Adam's paper today is entitled From Normans to Northerners, Identity in the Honour of Pontefract from the Norman Conquest to Magna Carta. I hope you enjoy it. In 1066, William, Duke of Normandy, launched his invasion of England in one of the most transformative events in English and arguably British history. With the Conqueror arrived the band of Norman noblemen, eager to carve out lordships of their own in their Duke's new kingdom. Today I will examine the family of one of these noblemen, a man called Ilbert de Lacy, the soon-to-be Baron of Pontefract. Over the next 20 minutes or so, I will, hopefully, demonstrate how in the space of a century and a half or so, the de Lacys were transformed from foreign invaders in a hostile environment to distinctly Northern barons. I'll also talk a little about how the family attached itself to existing identities and even created new ones. As you might imagine, there are plenty of examples to choose from over this century and a half or so, but for the sake of brevity I'll focus primarily on a few aspects, covering the de Lacy's landholding patterns, political loyalties and religious benefactions. So a bit of a whistle-stop tour if you like. The study of identity is something that I'm sure we're all familiar with, either through our own work or as listeners to the MEMSA podcast but it's worth reiterating that there is a great body of literature dealing with the topic. But there's not been, so far as I can tell, an effort to chart the development of identity in this region for the period that I'm covering through the lens of baronial families in the way that I'm proposing to do. Um, This use of baronial families will, I hope, provide an exciting chance to look at identity on a variety of levels. So, it's worth briefly recapping the events of 1066, whether that's to brush up or whether it's an unfamiliar topic. I think it's quite easy to sort of anglo-centrically assume that this is a well-known topic sometimes. Um, So briefly, after seeing off an invasion by the King of Norway, Harold Godwinson, the recently crowned King of England, marched south to confront William of Normandy, another claimant to the throne. Harold lost the battle and his own life. This ushered in Norman rule in England, but it's not quite as simple as it often seems. 1066 certainly marks William's victory, and you might be forgiven for thinking his Christmas Day coronation that year might be the end of the matter. However, the conquest of England was far from over. Whilst the South was relatively quickly pacified, the lands that had made up the old kingdom of Northumbria proved somewhat more troublesome. These northern regions, so what we would think of today as sort of Yorkshire and Lancashire northwards, had never been fully integrated into the pre-conquest kingdom of England in the way that Wessex and Mercia had. They still retained different administrative units of land measurement and the strong Scandinavian connection, which was particularly the case in Yorkshire. A series of rebellions in the region culminated in William marching north, harrying as he went. Much of the region is recorded as waste in the Doomsday Book, and while the exact meaning of waste is contestable, it is clear that whatever meaning we ascribe to it, the region paid a heavy price for its disloyalty. 
It's at this point, the time of the Doomsday Book's composition, so around 1086, that we joined the de Lacy family. The family originated from Lassie in Normandy, hence the name, and held lands there before and after the conquest. Two de Lacy brothers arrived in 1066, Walter and Ilbert. Walter received land in Herefordshire, and his branch of the family would go on to play an important role in Anglo-Norman Ireland. The older brother, Ilbert, received the honour of Pontifrite in Yorkshire. The exact date that Ilbert received Pontifrite is unclear, but the record for his lands in Doomsday would suggest he hadn't been in position long, so sometime around 1086. We see a lot of pre-conquest personal names in the sort of second tier of landholders, which isn't the case further south in other baronies at this time. Some of these people are still around in later records, but they've sort of moved down a tier. There's been some work done on the de Lacy family by other academics. The Herefordshire branch of the family has been well served by Colin Veach with his 2014 book, but the Pontefract branch is less well researched. Sarah Rose has gone some way to remedy this with her 2009 thesis on landed society in the honour of Pontefract, but other than this, there's not been too much written on the family since W.E. Whiteman's 1960s monograph covering birth branches of the family. So the first marker of identity that I'd like to address is the actual structure of the lordship itself. Traditionally, there has been a view that there was this huge change in lordship and landholding after the Norman Conquest. To put the matter simply, there has traditionally been a view that there was a shift from a more scattered form of lordship pre-conquest to a more territorially based lordship afterwards. This idea of a big change in lordship around the time of the Doomsday Book has received some pushback in recent years, and the distinction is perhaps not as stark as has previously been suggested. However, it's clear that there was a fairly big stark change in Pontefract, regardless of what was happening elsewhere in England. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the geography of Yorkshire, Pontefract lies to the sort of southeast of Leeds, just off the modern M62 motorway. The town itself lay along an old Roman road north in the time of Ilbert. It was a large barony, stretching from the Huddersfield area to the area around Selby, although Selby wasn't a part of it, which we'll come to in a second. It's perhaps difficult to visualise from a verbal description, but the point I'm trying to get at is that this was a very territorially contiguous honour. The bulk of territory not held by the de Lacy's or the de Lacy's tenants largely centred on the royal manor of Wakefield, which is one of the only notable disruptions in the honour. Selby on the fringes of the honour was another royal possession at the time of Ilbert's arrival. And this pattern of cohesiveness is replicated in the nearby honour of Richmond, which is also in Yorkshire. And But these two are, are very much unusual in this. So obviously this didn't happen by accident. Ilbert didn't gain lands that all lie neatly next to each other by chance. The most likely explanation is that Pontefract and nearby Richmond were constructed in this way for defensive purposes, strategically. As I mentioned earlier, Pontefract sits on a key road north, putting it in a prime location given the ongoing threat of invasion from Scotland and rebellion in the north. The honour was not only structurally different from others, but it was also much longer lived, and seems to have exhibited strong honorial identity. The concept of honorial identity is again something which has been revised and received pushback, but once again Pontefract seems to be the exception. So it's all well and good talking about the structure of a barony, but what is a barony without a baron? We have several to look at for this period, but we'll focus on just a few here, and I'll try to avoid listing lots of names. Firstly, the elephant in the room, there are two non-de Lacy barons in this period. Robert de Lacy, the son of the first Baron Ilbert, suffered a rather abrupt fall from grace during the reign of Henry I, and he was replaced by Hugh de Laval as Baron, 
Hugh died and was in turn replaced by William Maltravers. Upon the death of King Henry, Maltravers was murdered by what Richard of Hexham describes as the Men of the Honour in his chronicle, and replaced with Robert's son, Ilbert II. While Hexham's account is perhaps a little overdone, this is generally considered one of the best examples of an oriel identity in medieval England, even by historians such as David Crouch, who were generally cool on the concepts. The importance of having a Delacian Pontifract can be seen a few decades later in the 1190s. This is a bit of a messy succession, so stick with me. Ilbert II died childless, leaving the barony to his brother Henry de Lacy. Henry de Lacy also died childless, which left the honour to pass through a female cousin to Roger, the constable of Chester. Upon inheriting the barony, Roger changed his name to Roger de Lacy, and in fact this was an actual requirement of his inheriting the honour. Now Roger, as constable of Chester, was clearly already a significant man, and he continued to be listed as Roger of Chester, at times even when active in Pontefract. So just why did he need to adopt the de Lacy name? Was it to see off a potential de Laval claim to the barony, given they still held lands in the honour? Or perhaps memories of the Maltravers episode lingered, and it was thought that only a de Lacy would satisfy Richard of Hexham's Men of the Honour? Either way, it's clear that the de Lacy's and Pontifract were inextricably connected by this point, and that this connection was considered sufficiently important to require a name change, either by Roger himself or at the behest of the king. As I mentioned earlier, there were also Lacy estates in Normandy, around the town of Lassie. These estates were held jointly by both the Pontifract and Herefordshire branches of the family, and there's an interesting diversion between the two branches here. It seems that generally, the Pontifract family didn't pay too much attention to their estates outside of Pontifract, even these ancestral lands in Normandy. Ilbert I was quick to grant away geographically isolated manors in England, such as Tingewick in Buckinghamshire, which he gave to Trinity of the Mount in Rouen, around 1088. This contrasts deeply with the Herefordshire family, who were transnational magnates, not only between England and Ireland, but also in Normandy. The Herefordshire branch actively expanded their Norman estates, purchasing the entire honour of, and you'll have to excuse me for butchering the pronunciation, Le Pan au Harras in the 1170s, amongst other acquisitions. And this is something we just don't see with the Pontifract de Lacy's. So there's a big contrast here. Both de Lacy's, both border lords, but with one branch actively embracing and encouraging their Normanness, whilst the other seemingly turned away from it in favour of focusing heavily on Pontifracts and that block of territory I discussed earlier. Of course, an important function of the medieval aristocracy was the defence and administration of the kingdom, and in times of rebellion, invasion and civil war, the Lords of Pontifract could generally be counted on to remain loyal to the anointed king. However, there are a couple of buts here, and I'd like to focus a little on those. As you might know, John de Lacy, the final baron of our period, was one of the 25 Magna Carta sureties, and an early and enthusiastic rebel against King John, one of the Northerners faction identified by his own contemporaries. But the example I'd like to devote a little time to is the first exception to the rule, Robert de Lacy, who we came across earlier. Until his fall from grace, Robert seems to have followed much the pattern of the others. He clearly held great influence in the north of England, witnessing royal charters and being referred to as Vice Comity de Lacier, a style which somewhat dubiously indicates he was the Sheriff of Yorkshire. Whether he was really Sheriff or not, and Whiteman in his book certainly suspects not, I think correctly, he was clearly an influential man. A notification issued by King Henry I is addressed to Robert de Lacy and the Barons of Yorkshire, which might perhaps imply that Robert was the senior baron in the region. 
However, this particular notification is to inform the barons that Yorkshire should be free of a variety of taxes. So either Robert was the senior baron here, charged with carrying out the king's will, or Robert was actually the main culprit in raising these illicit taxes and had been marked down as the ringleader to be told off. It's unclear why Robert suddenly fell from grace around 1114. One suggestion has been that he threw in his lot with the king's brother, another Robert, Robert the Duke of Normandy, who made a few attempts to gain the English crown. However, whilst Robert perhaps had sympathies with the Duke, who was William the Conqueror's firstborn son, there's no evidence that he was anything other than loyal to the king. Whiteman suggests in his book that perhaps the king was looking for Norman allies, given there was trouble on the continent at this point. Perhaps, then, Robert was a victim of the family's northernness, losing his position to the Laval family, who held useful estates in Normandy. I don't find either of these arguments particularly convincing, but I don't yet have a better answer, and perhaps we never will. It seems particularly unlikely that the king would dispense with a powerful northern ally in favour of recruiting some relatively minor Norman landowners to his cause. But then the time of Robert's expulsion also makes it fairly unlikely that he'd been involved with Robert the Duke of Normandy. Nevertheless, with the family's return at the start of King Stephen's reign, something like normal service resumed. Restored as Baron of Pontefract, Robert's son Ilbert II fought for King Stephen against both baronial and external threats, in both the Battle of the Standard in 1138 and the Battle of Lincoln in 1141, and he disappears from the record after the latter. Although it seems he wasn't killed, he was captured with Stephen. The Battle of the Standard is worth lingering on here, as a significant marker of Northern identity. Fighting against the Scots in Yorkshire, the battle was very much a northern affair, with Stephen kept busy by baronial revolt in the south. The banners, or standards, which the battle takes its name from are also significant. The army flew not a banner of the King or of England, but rather the banners of St Cuthbert, John of Beverley, and Wilfred of Ripon. Here then we have a powerful regional lord in the thick of a battle that is cloaked in the regalia and symbols of what might be considered a regional identity. As this suggests, saints' cults could be a clear marker of identity, and indeed, work by academics such as Susan Rudyard has clearly established this principle. As far as the de Lacy family are concerned, Ilbert's grant of Tingewick to a Norman monastic foundation is typical of this first generation of Norman barons, and can be seen throughout England during this period. For example, Alan Rufus, the Baron of Richmond, made a similar grant to an abbey in Onger, his homeland, around the same time. However, in Pontefract, these Norman donations quickly gave way to a pattern primarily focused on local and regional monastic foundations. Donations to monasteries and affiliation with saints' cults was a method used to ingratiate the Normans with the population in Durham, an especially troublesome region in the years after 1066. There, a kind of hijacking of the cult of St Cuthbert proved the trick, after a series of failed elves and sheriffs. This allowed a symbol of regional identity to become associated with the conquerors. Clearly then, this could be done, and I would argue that this is what the de Lacy's attempted in Pontefract. Indeed, this was something that wasn't even limited to the Normans. Religion was an important marker before the conquest too, and figures such as Cuthbert and St Oswald had been important markers of Northumbrian identity long before the conquest. Take, for example, the famous image of King Athelstan presenting St Cuthbert with a book. Athelstan was a king equally keen to tie himself to Cuthbert during his conquest of Northumbria, Similarly, the Scandinavians in pre-conquest East Anglia had made an effort to associate themselves with St Edmund, despite it being them who had been responsible for martyring him. But returning to our friends in Yorkshire, one particular favourite of the family seems to have been Nostal Priory. 
The hermit monks at Nostal appear to have caught the attention of Robert de Lacy around 1109, and a series of grants were made between then and 1114. There was a brief period of dispute between Nostal and Henry de Lacy, with a flurry of contradictory confirmation charters relating to disputed grants made during the de Lacy exile. To cut several pages short, Henry seems to have suspected the monks of attempting to take a little more than they were entitled to, and he wasn't afraid to let them know. So we see a few charters where the monks will request confirmation of, say, eight carcuates of land, and Henry will write back saying that he's happy to confirm that they have four carcuates of land, and this goes back and forth for some time until it sort of seems to settle down. Bizarrely, despite this, Henry seems to have nevertheless found himself installed as patron of Nostal Priory, after royal interest had dwindled. It had been a favourite of Henry I's, but after his death, the, the royal interest in the priory sort of disappears. Nostal was dedicated to St Oswald, who, like Cuthbert in Durham, was an important pre-conquest figure of Northern identity, as a martyred king of Northumbria. It certainly seems that the family saw this as a good means by which to attach themselves to an extant marker of regional identity. Nostal was also sufficiently important that both non-Delacy barons made donations to shore up their own lordship, and the site was regionally influential. Its prior was for a time the Bishop of Carlisle, and a number of satellite communities were founded in Northumberland. For the sake of brevity, I won't go into this into too much detail, but the Delacys also made donations to Selby Abbey, St Mary's at York, and Durham Cathedral. So here then we can see them align into the three main powers in the north the King, York, and Durham. To conclude, it is clear that the de Lacy's arrived as Norman conquerors, but soon found themselves a place within the north of England, and carved out a Roland identity for themselves there. They became inextricably involved in and identified with Pontefracts, as seen in the Maltravers episode, and made donations to regionally significant saints and houses. Reliable loyalists to the Crown, the family cultivated an identity as significant regional barons, in fact, this distinctness was even present in the administrative structure of the honour itself. Over the space of a century and a half or so, foreign conquerors had been transformed into men who could be identified as northerners by their own contemporaries, not merely rebels but a distinct faction. Clearly then, this period is one of a transformation of identity from Norman conquerors to northerners, from being alien invaders in a hostile population to being intrinsically part of the region. Once again, that was Adam Cook with his paper From Normans to Northerners, Identity in the Honour of Pontefract from the Norman Conquest to the Magna Carta. And I actually had the opportunity to chat with Adam a little bit more about some of his research. Welcome, Adam. Welcome to the Memza podcast. And thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk through some uh, more aspects of your research. Thanks for having me. Um, so I think to start, um, you mentioned at the start of your paper that you've provided us here with a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of sort of three aspects of identity in this period. So just to summarise quickly, what do you think made someone distinctly northern in this period? Um, so I think, firstly, you've sort of got to look at the situation just before this period. Um, so England had been unified as a kingdom in sort of the mid-10th century, but what had been the Kingdom of Northumbria hadn't sort of been assimilated into England fully by the, the time of the conquest. So I think it's, it's sort of still true by 1066 that it's not really as integrated as 
what would have been Mercia and Wessex are. Um, and in particular, you've got this sort of lingering Scandinavianness in Yorkshire in particular, um, where sort of even now you've even got sort of Scandinavian place names like Coppergate in York, Whitby, North Yorkshire, um, and various others. Um, and I think one one thing that does sort of distinguish northernness maybe is um, that there's maybe something in sort of Gerald of Wales, who was an Anglo-Norman writer who mostly deals with sort of Ireland and Wales, um, he goes off on a bit of a tangent when he's discussing Wales um, about how people in England sing. And I won't bore you with the folk work because it's very long. Um, but he, he goes on to describe how people in sort of Yorkshire and Northumbria sing differently. Um, and he, amongst other things, says um, the English in general do not adopt this way of singing, but only those who live in the north. And then he suggests that this has come from the Danes and Norwegians who so often invaded these parts of the island and held them longer under their dominion. Um, so that's sort of been written in the 1190s. So even in the period, sort of well after 1066, there's still a, a suggestion that Northern England is somehow different linguistically. And I think one of, one of the big things that comes up in the paper that you can see at the beginning of the period is that it's especially at the beginning, is that it's not really necessarily a rejection of Norman rule, but it's maybe a continuation of a sort of rejection of English rule rather than than just sort of Norman rule. There's maybe a sense that the North doesn't really like being ruled by the Normans, um, but it also a sense that it doesn't really like being ruled by the South, which maybe is something that continues to their let other people to decide that. Um, and that can sort of be marked a few different ways. But I think through the period, you see a, a lot of rebellion. You see a lot of sort of resistance to, to either administrative change. And you've still got different administrative units, sort of whop and takes instead of hundreds in the north, even though they're pretty much the same thing. Um, so I think that's something. But I, I think it's also, it's it's hard to sort of say, what would have made somebody distinctly Northern in the period as a sort of catch-all term? Because one thing that I am sort of looking more into in the thesis is whether there's a difference between Yorkshire and Northumberland in that Northumberland is a more active frontier and Yorkshire sort of gets brought into English administration a bit more easily throughout the period as it becomes sort of less of a borderland. Well, I also think there's a, a case that we we're looking at a lot of this through the lens of conquerors. So you can't really know what, what sort of would have made people Northern, so to speak, in 1066, because all that we know about 1066 and the things that happened after come from the people who conquered it. So it's, it's maybe a difficult one and there's maybe not a sort of catch-all term, but I think there is a clear distinction, even at the time, that this is somewhere different, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. That's completely fascinating. And it's also interesting to see parallels, even with sort of northerners now, doesn't it? So I guess related to my last question, that this, it's clear that there was this sort of northern identity, this northern culture. Why was it so important then that the de Lacy's assimilated into that northern culture, do you think? I think sort of, again, the context in the 1080s will have made it quite important. So it was a, a region that had been in sort of open rebellion fairly recently at that time. Um, a bit further north in Durham, the, the Norman Earl who'd been sent to take charge in 1069 had been sort of invited in and then very quickly murdered um, before he really got a chance to take up his post and he, he didn't seem to be particularly keen on going anywhere. 
So by 1086, Yorkshire had been sort of fairly effectively subdued with the harrying of the North, um, which I suppose harrying will do that. Um, but I think it's easy to forget that at the time, nobody could have known that there wouldn't be more rebellions. So obviously we know now that things sort of calmed down and settled a bit. But if you're being sent into Yorkshire in 1086 and you've seen 20 years of unrest and rebellion and what's happened further north, I think it's it's easy to sort of forget that. And also the the potential of invasion from Scotland or Scandinavia and the, the threat of a Scandinavian invasion was something that did worry William the Conqueror, even though it never really came to be. So I think it's, it's maybe the case that in any sort of conquered region, especially a region that's troublesome, you're on fairly unsteady footing as a newcomer. Um, and like I said, in the 1080s, this was particularly rebellious. Um, so even before the conquest, Harold Godwinson's brother had, had a bit of a torrid time in in sort of Yorkshire and Northumberland as the Earl of Northumbria, he'd been sort of almost kicked out by the people there because they just didn't want him. Um, it might have been possible maybe for a conqueror to subdue the region and William arguably did that with the Harrying of the North, but obviously he's the king and he can sort of come, kill the populace and then leave and leave the mess to somebody else to deal with. Um, whereas the de Lacy's sort of needed to actually govern it. And I think after the, the first couple of generations, it's maybe something that it's less the de Lacy's assimilating in and more it becomes a composite identity. And that's something you maybe see in the North to almost go back to the last question that the, even by this point already, the North had sort of been a place of composite identities, sort of Anglo-Scandinavian and the Anglo-Scandinavians who'd ruled it had also been involved in Ireland. And it's maybe, maybe a case that at first it's a, a pragmatic power thing that we need to, sort of live with these people permanently and rule them and we would like not to be killed like the the Earl of Northumbria. But I think after that, it maybe becomes more of a sort of mutual thing that they are by that point, Northern Lords. Okay, so related to that last discussion and you touched on it a little bit in your answer just before, um, your paper discussed the sort of ways in which these elite baronial families adopted and influenced northern identities. But do we actually have a sense of the sort of identities of the lower classes? Are there any surviving accounts written by or about the people who served under the de Lacy family, for example? And do we know how they responded to the invasion? Yeah, so that's something that is unfortunately quite hard to tell for this period. Um, and it essentially boils down to us trying to read it in sources, which are at first glance the domain of the sort of higher ups. Um, so to answer the second part directly, the short answer is no, there aren't any accounts written by or about the lower classes. Um, so generally the sources for the period are sort of charters, financial records, chronicles. Um, as you would expect, the chronicles are the most colourful, um, but generally that sort of narrative history is written for the elite and it's mostly written by monks. Um, so it would be in Latin or even where you get sort of vernacular histories. So for King John's reign, you get the Anonymous of Buffoon's Chronicle, but that was written for um, a Flemish-Belgian Duke, I think. Um, generally, I think the did not have seen any reason that we should be interested in the lower classes um, and they don't often go into too much detail. So I think even if they could, to the people writing these chronicles, they just wouldn't be able to fathom why sort of URI might be the slightest bit interested in what peasants think and feel. Um, so there's there's records of donations to religious houses from the tier underneath the, the Lacey, sort of the 
the tenants of the delay season. That's something that's discussed a little bit by Sarah Rose in her thesis that I've mentioned in the paper. Um, I've not yet got through sort of all the records on that that I'd want to look at. Um, what I would expect to find and sort of have on the ones I've seen, um, although I might well be wrong, is a, a pattern of donations to houses that the Delacy Baron patronises. Um, so to go back to the example of Nostal, you'd sort of expect to see the tenants of the Delacy's making donations there. And from what I've been able to see so far, that does seem to be the case in Pontefracts. Um, and there's also Henry Delacy donates quite a lot to the, the Knights Templar. And from what I've seen so far, there's a, a few of his tenants sort of come in with Templar donations as well. But then it, it's going to be a case of sort of sitting down and working out, are they donating to the Templars? Because Henry de Lacy donated to the Templars, or did they also have some actual connection? And one way we might be able to get some sort of identity in terms of the lower classes that I, I mentioned a little bit previously is maybe saints cults. So obviously Christianity and going to church would have been part of everybody's lives at the time. I mean, I think where a church is dedicated to a significant local or regional saint, so say, for example, St. Oswald or St. Cuthbert for the, the north of England, uh, we might be able to view that as a marker of identity, which would have also applied to the sort of lower tiers of society. And I think if if that is the case, it's, it's maybe something that actually links the aristocracy and the lower classes, sort of one of the few things that directly links them. Um, and maybe something they can all partake in together, albeit in sort of different ways. They're all sort of involved in the same activity. Um, it's, it's maybe a way that other markers of identity, such as political loyalty, obviously can't really do that, in my opinion. Um, generally, though, I think it's, it's something we're always only going to have limited information on, and that information is always going to have to come from reading into sources that are produced for or by an elite class. Uh, well, obviously, that's not to say we shouldn't try. So there are some really interesting individuals that you pick out of your paper. And one of the individuals that stood out to me was uh, Robert DeLacy. He sounds like an interesting person. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about him and perhaps how you see his character and what kind of a man he was. Uh, so Robert's an interesting one. There's sort of irritatingly little detail on him. Um, but he does seem to have been quite an important man, at least regionally. Like he, he crops up at all the right times, which makes it all the more irritating that there's so little written about him. Um, he seems to have been important to the barony. It's, so it's Robert that founds Pontefract Priory and he's involved in the foundation of Nostal Priory, which became sort of an influential religious house across the north of England, as I think I mentioned in the paper. Um, in terms of his character, he seems to have been someone who was keen to establish himself in the barony quite early on. So a lot of the big development in Pontefract seems to happen after Robert comes in. And I think, um, or from what I've seen anyway, I would say that's when the barony sort of really starts to take shape a bit more. And Robert moves more towards donating to English religious houses rather than the sort of Norman donations that you see his father make and, and various other sort of Eve of the Conquest Lords make. And a lot of what we know about is his father Albert sort of comes from his, his period anyway, because I think off the top of my head, maybe one original charter survives for Ilbert's rule. So everything we've got on Ilbert is usually Robert's confirmation of it. The, what happened to him in terms of him falling from grace is a, a bit puzzling. Um, given that he does seem to have not really given the king any real cause for complaint beforehand. It's it's a bit of an odd one. I, like I said in the paper, I don't really buy that they would have 
sort of taking his lands away to give to the Laval family because they were supposedly a better option, um, which would suggest he'd done something wrong. Because I, I can't see that you would get rid of a regionally important figure for a sort of stopgap fix to get some Norman landowners on side. So like I said, I think that would suggest he had done something wrong. Quite what he'd done wrong, um, I'm not sure. But it might suggest he was maybe a little bit of a maverick. Um, and I think if you take that charter I mentioned in the paper as a sort of telling off of Robert as the ringleader of some illicit tax taking, and then there's maybe a bit of a, a tricky character coming through that is theoretically loyal to the king. Um, but you maybe need to keep an eye on him. Because at first, reading that, I did think, oh, this is great. This is this is Robert de Lacey being sent to round up all these sort of naughty barons who've been taking taxes. And then rereading it with my supervisor afterwards, I sort of thought, no, actually, this is, this is sort of a can you please stop taking these illicit taxes or we're going to have to do something. Um, so things are at an earlier stage than they would be with the disruption to a sort of archive work. Well, I get the impression he was an able administrator within Pontefract. Um, like I said, he makes a fair few religious foundations and benefactions, seemingly more than his father. Um, although, like I said, the records for Ilbert weren't great. So maybe an idea potentially that he's somebody quite keen to make his mark. Um, there's irritatingly not a lot in the way of descriptions of him in Chronicles, but through the sort of glimpses we've got from documentation, I think he's maybe a more complex character than meets the eye initially. And what happened to him is something that's sort of intrigued me since I first read about him. But then if if we do believe Richard of Hexham's account, now I mentioned earlier that the men of Pontefract were so desperate to have a Delacy back in town that they they killed the incumbent later on. He must have been reasonably popular. Unfortunately, we are running out of time now, but thank you so much, Adam, for talking to us today on the Memsa podcast. It's been so fascinating to learn about the development of Northern identities in this period. And um, I really can't wait to hear more about your research in, in the future as well. Thanks for having me. listening to this episode of Memsa's Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with Adam's work, you can follow him on Twitter at AdamCook1996. Similarly, if you'd like to hear more from Memsa and stay up to date with future podcast episodes, seminars and other events, you can follow us at Durham Memsa or you can join our Facebook group at Memsa Durham 2021-22.